We're in Daniel chapter 3 this morning, Daniel chapter 3. Before we look at this text, let's bow and look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the word and for those here to partake of it today. We pray that you would minister to our minds and hearts. May we see wonderful things. May the Holy Spirit instruct all of us in light of your precious word, and we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. John Wycliffe has been called the morning star of the Reformation. He was an Oxford scholar from England who spoke out against the Church of Rome back in the 1300s. He saw the corruption and the doctrinal heresies of the Roman Church, and he refuted those with the Word of God. Wycliffe lived at a time when the average Christian was very poor, but the Roman Church controlled two-thirds of the land. As a result of that, there was a movement raised up wanting to overthrow government, wanting to overthrow authority. The common people wanted to lead an uprising to have a military overthrow, and they wanted Wycliffe to join their team, realizing that he would be such a powerful spokesman to have. Wycliffe said, no way, we'll wait on God. Rather than fight against authority, we'll submit to authority because God controls all authority. That was his belief. Prior to the past presidential election in 2004 between President Bush and Senator Kerry, I heard many discussions on both sides of party lines as to how the country would be in jeopardy if their candidate lost. Let's say your candidate did lose. Let's say at some point the most godless liberal man or woman would be elected to become president of the United States, and let's say that leader was one who promotes adultery and abortion and immorality and idolatry and even atheism. Would God still be sovereign? Let me ask this another way. Would God still sovereignly bless those who stayed faithful to him under that kind of government? If that kind of thing happened, should the believer give up and live the rest of his life in fear? Would there be any hope or would life be over if that were to happen? Would there still be a place for God's people to say, we're going to remain faithful to the Lord, we're going to trust him? Those kinds of questions were actually faced in this passage which is before us today. Regardless of the time period or regardless of the corruptness of a political leader, the fact of the matter is God is still looking for faithful people who will stand out and stand up as a witness for him. Edmund Burke of the 1700s has been called the most brilliant and original thinker to ever sit in the British House of Commons. Edmund Burke said, The only thing needed for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Thank God back in Daniel's day, during the Babylonian captivity, four young godly men did something. And they stood for something. And they made a difference. Now one would have thought that Nebuchadnezzar would have been humbled by the prophetic interpretation to the dream that we saw last time we were together. And one would have thought that Nebuchadnezzar really wanted to be right with God who revealed all of those remarkable things. And his initial testimony initially did look like real repentance. After all, in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 47, he said, Surely your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you've been able to reveal this mystery. It appeared as though, at that moment, that Nebuchadnezzar had truly come to terms with God. But there are those instant emotional conversions which aren't real. I think all of us have seen that. We've known of people who walk down aisles, all emotionally moved, but they have not really spiritually resolved anything, and that's what happened here. It was an emotional movement, but it was not a spiritual resolution to a real spiritual problem. 
Apparently, as time progressed, Nebuchadnezzar became more and more impressed with himself. He became more and more proud, perhaps, thinking of that statue and he was the head of gold. He became more and more arrogant, more obnoxious, and that's the tip-off because those who are really right with God really become more and more humble as they walk with the Lord. There's no question that God gave Nebuchadnezzar several opportunities to come to terms with him and his sovereignty. But time and time again, Nebuchadnezzar seems to lapse into arrogant rebellion against God and arrogant rebellion against God's people. And that's precisely what happens here. But there's a lesson that we see even when that does happen, and it is this. God is still sovereign even when leaders promote abominable things, and God will always use those, honor those, and protect those who stay faithful to him who refuse to do those things. That's the lesson you see here. God was still sovereign, even though this abominable leader was commanding abominable things. But he decided, I'm going to use those who stay faithful to me, who refuse to conform to that which is pagan. Now, those who purpose to do what's right before God will always be blessed by God, no matter what the environment. These three young men are really put to their own personal test, even without Daniel. Many believe Daniel was away on state business. It's not known for sure just where he was, but these three were put to their own private personal test. We will all be put to our own personal test at one time or another, and you'll be put to your personal test to see if you'll really stand for God or not. It'll happen in your world. It'll happen on your job. It may happen in a relationship. You can be sure of this. If you are purposing to live your life for the Lord, you'll be put to the test. The devil will tempt you to try to destroy your faith, but God will allow you to be tested to try to develop your faith. It was Dr. Warren Wiersbe who said, Faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. But if you are faithful to God... You will go through this situation of faith testing and you will shine bright for the glory of God. You will be put to your test, but if you stand for God, you will discover you will be used in a mighty way. And it takes courage to remain faithful to the Lord when most people aren't, but that's the kind of faithfulness that leads to great blessing. Now there are six main parts to this narrative I want you to see today as we go down through this passage. Part number one, Nebuchadnezzar made an image. Verse one says that he made an image of gold. We don't know exactly how long a period of time transpired between the events of chapter two and the event of chapter three, verse one. Some have said just a few months went by. Others have said it could have been 15 to 20 years. But apparently what we do know, as time transpired, enough time transpired for Nebuchadnezzar to begin to forget about God and think more and more about himself and his own greatness. When things seem to go good, that's what people do who aren't right with God. They tend to think more highly of themselves than they ought. They tend to rely upon themselves and give credit to themselves for the things that are really of God. More than likely, based on the fact that Daniel had revealed that in his dream he was the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar decided that he would construct an image of gold in his own honor. It may have been that it was wooden built, just covered with gold. Perhaps it was some brick or stone that was covered with gold. I doubt seriously it was all gold, but you'll notice the dimensions of it. 90 feet tall and about 60 feet wide, which is 60 cubits by 6. And now you begin to see a number come into play here. It's a 6-6 six, six number. You're going to see that number come up a little bit later. This will be connected to another world leader. He'll be called the Antichrist. And the number that you'll see connected to him is also a number of a bunch of sixes. It's 666. And Nebuchadnezzar built this image and he put it in the plain of Dura. This plain was a relatively flat piece of land 
but it is located in an area that's surrounded by mountains and that makes it very impressive. In other words, you can see this from a long distance. Archaeologists, specifically the archaeologist Opert, uncovered a base or pedestal of something very impressive. It was located about six miles southeast of Babylon, about 16 miles southwest of Baghdad, Iraq. It was very tall, very visible to the plain. It was a brick structure, 45 feet long on each side and 20 feet high. It was a huge base. And Thomas Robinson said Oprah discovered that it was a base of some colossal statue. Now, the image was probably a human form. May have been the form of what he saw in the dream or his attempt to produce that. Or it could have been a statue of himself, the kind of thing that Saddam Hussein did in Iraq, just put statues around the country of himself. But what I want you to see here, ladies and gentlemen, is just because someone builds some huge structure and does it in the context of something worshipable doesn't mean it glorifies God. Go to Salt Lake City and you'll see one of the most impressive pieces of city block in any major city in the United States. It's owned by a church and you'll see one impressive temple there. And on the top of that temple, in Temple Square, you'll see an angel that's glistening in gold. But I want to tell you, that's a religion of satanic lies. And even though it looks big and impressive, it's of the devil, just like this statue. Which brings us to the second part. Nebuchadnezzar invites all Babylonian leaders to dedicate the image Verses 2 and 3. Now you look down through here and there are eight groups of people specifically named. It becomes apparent that all major political and judicial rulers were invited to come to the dedication of this image. These were the powerful bureaucrats. As one writer said, this was the big brass of the Babylonian world. The satraps were invited. They're first on the list. They were protectors and guardians of the king's realm. The satraps were leaders who had control of both military and political power. Then you have the prefects were invited. The prefects were supervisors over military men, kind of like a military general. All the generals of the military were invited. Those would be the prefects. Then you have the governors were invited. They were those who ruled over assigned regions. They were civil rulers. They also ruled more over civil government rather than military government, just like a governor today. Then you had the counselors. Now, when you think of counselor, I don't want you to think in terms of what we think of when we think of the word counselor. The word counselor here was a, a chief arbitrator in government, someone you consulted in governmental matters. Then you had the treasurer. The treasurer is synonymous with what our idea of treasure is. This would be a person who apparently would manage kingdom funds. Judges were there. They referred to people who were like the lawyers. They could carefully look at law and decide what was right in the Babylonian world. The magistrates were there. They were like the judges who would execute justice and carry out responsibilities based on decisions and judgments that were handed down. And then you have rulers invited. Now what you have here in this description are all leaders, all political, all military leaders, judicial leaders assembled for the purpose of dedicating this impressive image. This is not the kind of group you'd want to offend. These are the highest, most powerful administrators from the Babylonian world. You would not want to cross these guys. I'm certain when some of these Babylonian leaders saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and they thought of Daniel, they were still upset by the appointment of these Jews. 
who had been given these high positions of honor, and certainly the wise approach for these four would not be do things to offend this group of people. In other words, you would not want to offend this impressive list of leaders. But sometimes, no matter who you're in the presence of, it becomes necessary to take a stand. And that's precisely what's going to happen here. And if it comes right down to it, an issue that pertains to obeying God or the most powerful person in the universe, the choice for the faithful believer is, will obey God. Which brings us to the third part. Nebuchadnezzar instructs that all people fall down and worship the image, verses 4 to 6. The herald loudly proclaimed to you, command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of those instruments, you are to fall down and worship immediately. Now in verse 4, we see that a command is given to all people regardless of language. I want you to see that. All peoples, nations, men of every language. When you hear these musical instruments play, you're to fall down and worship the image. And if you don't do that, you'll be cast into a furnace which is filled with a blazing fire. I want you to notice what they are commanded to do. Fall down and worship. And if you go down through this chapter, you'll notice that word worship occurs 11 times. It's a particular Hebrew word that actually means worship in the point of falling down on your face before something. Now I want you to understand what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. He's bringing all people of the world together into an ecumenical worship service. And he's bringing them of all languages and of all nations. Bring them together for worship. But ladies and gentlemen, this worship service is idolatrous and it's satanic. We're moving toward a one world government. The Antichrist is going to do this very thing. He's going to bring the whole world together for a worship service. And if you don't worship him, you're likely to be killed. Revelation speaks of that and we'll show you that later in the book of Daniel. But just this past week we had the Major League Baseball game that took place between all the All-Stars. And there was a home run derby contest that took place the night before the All-Star game. And the thing that they were billing this as is we're bringing the world together through baseball. It's not only affecting automobiles that are being built, it's now affecting the sporting world. Everything is moving together to form a one-world system. It's heading toward a one-world government in sports, in business, and certainly in religion. And there are those who will tell you that... We must all worship together. But I want you to know very clearly, ladies and gentlemen, there are worship services in which God is not part of it. And this was one of them. There are people who are gathering today in churches all over the world who say, we're going to worship God. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not there because it is a worship service that is without Christ. And the threat is, if you don't worship, you'll be punished and thrown into a fire. Now, the punishment of death by burning in an oven was a Babylonian punishment. The peculiar feature, it seems, of the Medes and Persians was that you would be cast into a lion's den. The peculiar feature of punishment for the Greece world or the Greco world was that you would be killed with a sword. And it seems that Rome developed their own peculiar brand of punishment. It was called crucifixion. However, even with the threat of being thrown into a fiery furnace, the way Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego calculated it, it was better to be physically thrown into a fiery furnace than to eternally go to the fires of hell. Now, most people today do not think like that. They don't take pending judgment seriously, but these three did. 
The fact of the matter is most people today would rather escape a temporal problem and forget about the fact that there's an eternal judgment at stake so they would yield to the temporal and not humble themselves to realize there's a judgment coming from Almighty God. One of the most moving descriptions that you'll ever read of a Christian who literally faced death by fire is contained in a description of the first church historian Eusebius, his description of what happened to Polycarp. Eusebius claimed that he actually received documents from people handed down to him that were eyewitnesses of the death of Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp was arrested by Herod, the chief of police, and they told him that if he would call Caesar Lord, and if he would be willing to make a sacrifice to Caesar, he would be kept safe. Polycarp, who was pastor of a church, said, I'll not do it. So he was taken to a stadium and asked to denounce Christ and swear allegiance to Caesar. The leaders threatened him and said, if you do not do this, you're going to be destroyed by fire. Polycarp said these words, and I quote, The fire you threaten burns for a time and is soon extinguished. There is a fire you know nothing about, the fire of the judgment to come and of eternal punishment, the fire reserved for the ungodly. Eusebius says that Polycarp said that, and the crowds immediately rushed and gathered tinder to light him on fire. They tied his hands behind him and they set him on fire. Flames shot up and Polycarp went into heaven to be with the Lord. He chose with his own life the eternal rather than the temporal. There will be moments in your Christian life where you will be faced with, do I do what's right for the temporal or do I do what's right for the eternal? Am I willing to take a stand for what I know will please God, or am I going to do right now what will please most people? It may come to you in a job. It may come to you in a relationship. It may come to you as a wife, as a husband, as an employer, as an employee. But there will be moments, personal moments of choice, in which you'll have to decide, do I please people for the temporal or God for the eternal? Now, I want you to notice from verse 5 that there is an impressive list of instruments that were used at this service, and this impressive list of instruments were used to bring the type of music to the worship service that, frankly, was satanic and idolatrous. I want you to keep in mind this is called a worship service. We are gathered together to worship. It's been said that music has the power to soothe the beast in a man. It also has the power to release the savage in a man. One writer observed that music can be a wonderful tool and treasure of God, or it can be a destructive weapon of Satan. There are seven types of instruments described here, some of which we can somewhat figure out what they were. The horn refers to some wind instrument, like a curved ram's horn. Flute is number two on the list. It was an instrument which had a whistle or hiss sound made of reeds, almost like a flute we might expect today. There was the lyre. It appears to be an instrument like a harp with several strings. The trigone appears to have been a triangular-shaped instrument with four strings. The psaltery was a triangular-shaped instrument with 20 strings. It sounded something like a harp. The bagpipe was a typical bagpipe-type instrument. And then the verse ends by saying all kinds of music. They had other types of music and all kinds of music which are not named. What you have at this worship service is you've got different instruments and you have all types of music. Blended together, these instruments could make beautiful music. But regardless of the impressiveness of this orchestra, the fact of the matter is it was satanic. This was not worship offered to God. It was religious worship to the devil. 
Don't kid yourself, ladies and gentlemen. Some of the most beautiful and intoxicating music in the world may be heard in apostate churches. Go to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and see that organ that takes up half a wall and listen to those voices that mock who Jesus Christ is. Look at the papal fanfare, the trumpets, and all the organ music that takes place in Rome. All of it that denies the Lord who bought them. Don't fool yourself. Satanic music is big production. Lots of instruments, talented musicians, a lot of pomp, candles. It's all there. Lots of people playing instruments. The music touches and moves people's emotions. And it's called worship. But it's not from God. And it does not glorify God. That's the kind of music Nebuchadnezzar had. All kinds of music at his heathen worship service. There are those, in fact, there are many, who are under a great delusion that they worship God through music, when in fact the music that they're playing does not worship God. I personally know in this area of a person who is called a worship leader, I had the opportunity to speak with this individual about biblical matters, spiritual matters. And in speaking to this man about spiritual matters, it became very clear to me that apparently he didn't know the basics of doctrine. Because when I asked him some very basic things, he was very fuzzy about those kinds of things. Yet he's being thrust up in front of people and says, this is your worship leader. That is a joke. Now, I believe, ladies and gentlemen, it is evil to sit in church and listen to musicians play various types of music who, number one, do not know the Lord. Dr. J. Vernon McGee said one time he was invited to speak at a church, and he said this woman got up and sang beautifully, and she was having her eyes shut and waving her hands, and he said when she sang, there was a deadness to it. Fact of the matter is, he said it was so dead that when I got up before I preached, I said, I'm going to have the congregation sing a hymn. He said when the service was over, he pulled one of the leaders aside and he said, who's that woman that sang? He said, one of the leaders said to him, well, it's a woman of some important person in the church. They didn't even know if she knew the Lord. They've got her up here singing in front of people just to put on some musical performance. That certainly is not that which pleases the Lord. The second evil in the church is to play music other than that which really does worship God. There's a lot of music that falls under the category of worship that is anything but worship. I was one night in Dallas, Texas, and I wanted to duck into a very famous church and hear the word of God preached by supposedly a very famous Bible preacher. The night that I went to the service, that Sunday night in Dallas, Texas, they had an opera singer. Oh, it was flashy, singing operatic songs. And certainly this person had a beautiful voice, but they wasted my Sunday night. I didn't go there to hear opera singing. I went there to hear the word of God, and they didn't even preach the word of God. That's the kind of thing that was happening here Ironside said, people may call it worship to sit and listen to a trained and possibly unconverted choir and orchestra rendering sweet and touching strains, but the music has nothing to do with true adoration of the Father and the Son because it must be in spirit and truth to be acceptable to God. Listen, music that's worshipful must be protected. 
And if it's worshipful music, it must be that which honors the Lord. It's doctrinally sound, and it's being presented by people who love the Lord. The fourth part of the narrative is Nebuchadnezzar insists on immediate incorporation of worship of the image. Verse 7, therefore at the time you hear these things, you are to immediately uh, fall down and worship this. That's what he demands that people do. As soon as these instructions were given, the sound of the instruments went forth. All people present from all nations, from all languages, fell down to worship the image set up by the king. And I want to tell you that is exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. He's going to come in the world of religion. He's going to make a peace treaty with the nation Israel. And in the middle of that treaty, he's going to break that treaty. He's going to demand that he be worshipped. He'll set up, as it were, an idol in the temple of Jerusalem. Revelation 13 tells us this. And he'll demand that people either worship that or be killed. Just exactly what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. You worship this idol or you're going to die. You may think, my goodness, we would never see that kind of thing in our culture. We never see it in our generation. This is far removed. If you think this kind of thing cannot happen, think again. That's exactly what happened in 1936 with Adolf Hitler. Herr Balder von Schirach, director of the German youth, was quoted in the London Times on July 29, 1936, and here's the quote. One cannot be a good German and at the same time deny God, but an avowal of faith in the eternal Germany is at the same time an avowal of faith in the eternal God. If we act as true Germans, we act according to the laws of God. Whoever serves Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer, serves Germany, and whoever serves Germany serves God. That is the mindset that says you worship a man, you worship Hitler. If you're worshiping him, you're worshiping God. If you're blindly obeying him, you're blindly obeying God. It's that same mindset. One of the first things God demands is that no other gods be worshiped but him. God is a jealous God. And as Colossians tells us, there are vain fleshly invented by men religious worship services that are of no value in the sight of God. And really, they're of no value to you. Because if you sit in one of these services, they're not going to give you strength. They're not going to give you a love for the word, a love for the Lord. They're not going to blossom you in truth. The fifth part is Nebuchadnezzar informants notify him of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verses 8 to 12. Now certain Chaldeans noticed that the three Jewish young men did not worship the golden image. And when the instruments sounded, it's debated as to where Daniel was at the time. The logical answer is he wasn't present at the dedication. Perhaps he was away on some state business. But these three wouldn't have been hard to spot because they're the only ones standing. Everyone else bowed down when they heard the music and these are the only three left. One time I had to go someplace and there was a bunch of vehicles that were all of the same color and mine was of the same color and I parked it in the spot. And I remember thinking when I came out and when I get done and come out, I'm likely to have a difficult time finding my vehicle because all the cars around there look like the same color car. But when I came out from this place, the other cars were gone and mine stood out completely alone. That's the way it was for these three. They stood out completely alone because they're standing. Apparently Nebuchadnezzar himself couldn't see it, but certain Chaldean informants could see them. And of course they reported it to Nebuchadnezzar. They were jealous of the promotions that these Jews had. Jealousy and envy are terrible sins. I'll tell you, if you're a jealous or envious person, it'll consume you to the point where you'll do hurtful and hateful things against people that you should love. Cain was jealous of Abel and murdered him. 
Joseph's brothers were jealous of Joseph. They sold him. Saul was jealous of David, and he pursued him and tried to kill him. And the religious leaders were jealous of Jesus, and they murdered him. It's just like John Chrysostom said, as a moth gnaws at a garment, so envy will consume a person. Now, Satan is out to report any disobedience to God just as quick as he can, but also remember this, obedience to the Lord is seen by the Lord, and these charges are specifically brought against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're in verse 12. There are three specific charges. They have disregarded you, Nebuchadnezzar. Charge number two, they do not serve your gods. And charge number three, they do not worship the image. And what's so wonderful about this, ladies and gentlemen, is all three charges were true. And when you look at this, these are true charges of faithfulness to God. This is a wonderful testimony for God. And when you are confronted with whether or not you'll be faithful to the Lord, it's hard at times to stand, but when you stand, don't back down. Tell the truth. Stand your ground. That's what these three did. I know of a case in which a pastor friend was branded too harsh because of his stand against a particular sin when he was confronted did you take this stand he said you bet I did I know of a case in which a pastor told someone you don't need to be running to a bunch of counselors who don't know God you need to go to the counselor and the counseling book his word that's where you'll find answers and when a counselor called him up and challenged him did you tell him that he said you bet I told him that that's the truth when you take a stand then be willing to stand I know of a case in which an individual went to a mass that featured a bunch of man-made religious idolatry. In the middle of it, people were kneeling down, and this one person refused. I'll not bow down. And when he was confronted, did you bow down? No, I didn't, and I'm not about to. Submit myself to something that's idolatrous and heretical that's not found in the Word of God. So when these charges are brought against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're true, but they also testify of faithfulness to the Lord. Which brings us to the final part. Nebuchadnezzar is irritated and insists that they worship the image. Verses 13 to 18. Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders. He was angry. He demands, in verse 13, that these three be brought before him. He asks them whether or not the report were true. And then, in verse 15, he said, I'll give you another chance. I'll give you one more chance. We'll play the music again. You bow down this time, and everything will be okay. Now, what the three knew... When Nebuchadnezzar said, I'll give you one more chance, is they knew that God could deliver them if he wanted to. But what they didn't know is whether or not God will deliver them. They don't know this. They just know God could deliver them, but they don't know whether or not he will. What they do know, though, is idolatry is wrong, and they were not going to serve their gods or worship the image made by Nebuchadnezzar. And I love what happens in verses 17 to 18. Look at them. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. You know what I see here? These guys believe God. They're not trying to bargain with God. They're not trying to make some deal arrangement with God. God, you do this for me, and then I'll do this. They said, we don't know what God's going to do. Don't have any idea. He can deliver us if he wants. He can let us burn up if he wants. But here's what we know. We're going to do what's right. We're going to stand up for God. That's what we're going to do. And that's the decision they made. These three would rather die than to commit idolatry. 
And they could have easily compromised their position. After all, they're far away from home. Who sees? Who knows? They're away from Jerusalem. They don't have their parents there. Nobody's around to keep track of them, to try to run some rough shot over them. They're all alone here. They could have easily said, look, we'll compromise. Who'll know? But you want to know? These three said, no way. We don't compromise what's right. We stand for God, and this is what gives them great victory, as you'll see it next week. Dr. Donald Campbell of Dallas Cemetery tells a remarkable story of a Christian man in a Korean village which was invaded by communists. He was ordered not to witness for Jesus Christ, but he kept at it anyway. And the communists took over the city and a soldier led him to the center of the crowd and put a pistol to his head. And he shouted in front of this whole crowd, denounce Jesus Christ and embrace communism or die. Dr. Campbell said the young man hesitated and looked around at the crowd. And he saw in the crowd some of the people that he'd personally witnessed to. He saw in the crowd some of the people that had come to faith and he'd had the privilege of being part of that and watching God work as they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And he realized that his testimony was on the line. You either denounce Jesus Christ or die. So he raised his head and said, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe, and crack, he was dead. And he was instantly with the Lord. It would have been nice if God would have bailed him out. God chose not to do it. He took him home to heaven. But I'll tell you, that faith that that young man had was the same kind of faith, the same kind of courage, the same kind of boldness that was exhibited by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. People like that don't bargain with God. They believe in God. Now, I doubt seriously that somebody's going to hold a gun to your head and ask you to denounce Jesus Christ. I doubt seriously someone's going to threaten to burn you in a fire if you do not fall down and worship some false idol. But you may be certain of this. If you purpose to live your life faithfully for the Lord, you will be persecuted. That's a promise. At some point, you'll be put to the test. You'll be asked to either give in to the temporal or stand for the eternal. You'll be asked to either do what's right and stand for God. You may be asked to stand against even a family member, someone that you supposedly love. You may be asked to stand against a friend. You'll be asked to stand up for God. And it's at that crisis moment where you'll have a decision to make. And if you go along with everyone else, you'll be just like everyone else. But if you say, no, in those moments, I'm going to stand for the Lord, you'll discover those are pivotal moments in your life and pivotal moments of faith. If in those crisis moments you purpose to do what's right, you will discover you'll go on to tremendous victory, great reward, and eternal honor. May we pray. Now, one of the decisions that you can make that's the most pivotal of your life is whether or not you're going to believe totally and only in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins or not. Now, most people of this world will tell you if you're a good person, you try hard. If you're real religious, if you're a good neighbor, if you do the best you can, you're going to make it. You aren't. There's only one way to have everlasting life, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you're at a crisis, pivotal moment right now. Will you believe that? Will you accept that? If you will, you pray something like this. God, I'm a sinner. I admit it. I don't rely on me anymore. I believe only and totally in Jesus Christ as my Savior. Father, we thank you for the 
testimony of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We thank you for the word of God. We pray that you would enable us to be people who believe you, not bargain with you. I pray that when we know the word, we'll stand for it. No matter what the threat or intimidation, we'll be men and women of God. For anything that you've done through this passage today, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.